This is Create Now, the show that explores creative and generative approaches to changing the systems that rule our world. We are sector agnostic, and our guests come from a myriad of different disciplines and practices, but they all share one thing in common. They are people who are creatively rethinking and remaking sectors once thought unchangeable. On this episode, I speak with Kate Rayworth, an Oxford-trained economist who is rethinking economics through the lens of environmentalism and human welfare. In the 1990s, Kate left the discipline to work supporting small business owners in Zanzibar, researching for Oxfam, and co-authoring the Human Development Report for the United Nations. More recently, Kate returned to economics to explore the mindset needed to tackle the world's complex challenges through her widely influential new book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. I'm Robert Rancic, and this is Create Now. So, hi, Kate. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me here at the Regenerative Futures Conference in Boulder, Colorado. My pleasure. Thank you. It's been really exciting to learn about your work and your book, Donut Economics, and then, of course, to hear you give a rousing lecture uh, two days ago where you received a standing ovation. But having now gone and dug in a little bit to your history, I was really touched and moved by a story that you told about how you got to economics. And it was really, as a young person, looking out into the world and seeing some really you know, wicked problems and a search for a language to begin to address them. So can you talk a little bit about how you found your way to economics and then your path away from economics and back? Yeah, I was a schoolgirl in the 1980s. And in those days, the way you learned about the world was watching the evening news on the TV. So that's where I started to see the things that were going on in the world, the Ethiopian famine. I remember the pot-bellied kids standing in rows on the TV. The Bhopal gas disaster, millions of, hundreds of people killed by this terrible Union Carbide gas disaster. Little bodies lying on the ground, hole opening up in the ozone layer. Exxon Valdez spewing its oil into Alaska's waters. These were the images of my teenage years. And I wanted to study something that would help me do something about it. And so I believe that the language I needed to learn if you wanted to change the world, the language I needed to learn was economics because it's the mother tongue of public policy. It's the language in which the newspapers are written and the news is conducted and the politicians justify what they're doing and business people make deals. So I went off to university to study economics thinking it would equip me to change the world. But the economics I was taught left me really frustrated because the issues I cared about, like social justice, environmental integrity, were pushed to the margins of the theory. They were add-ons, extras, that you could pursue if you wanted, but they weren't what it was about. And so after studying economics for four years, I walked away. My professors were saying, you stay, do a PhD. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm too embarrassed to call myself an economist. <laughs> Who would want to introduce themselves as that? <laughs> so I immersed myself in real-world economics challenges. I went and worked for three years in the villages of Zanzibar. Well, actually, I was supposed to work in an office in Zanzibar. I was an economist in the Ministry of Trade, Industries and Marketing. And when I got there, they said, well, we don't actually know what we want you to do. We just wanted somebody to come. 
But I was, I was a civil servant of the country. I wasn't working for the British government. I was working in a local office, no money, nothing. It was an amazing opportunity. And tourism was pouring into the country. And half of me was saying, come on now, you're supposed to be grown up, you're supposed to be a serious economist, you should be analysing the ministry's finances or something, which would have been a complete dead end because they did not want me to know what was going on with the money. At the same time, there were these people in the villages all over Zanzibar making beautiful crafts. And I could see tourists coming to the islands, desperate to buy something from the islands, but nothing was on sale. It was all actually being imported from India. So I spent three years, I learned Swahili, I spent three years going around the villages of Zanzibar, going into each village and saying, look, there's tourists coming to your island and they want to buy something that's made here. Show me what you're making. I have half localized because I speak your language, I know the materials you're using, but I have half tourist eyes and I know what they want and I will help you turn what you're making into something good enough quality or the right kind of design that they'll buy. So I, I was actually trying to sneak off and be an artist. <laughs> and if any official person turned up, I could say, oh, I'm working on micro-entrepreneurship development <laughs> in the villages. But actually, I was helping design cushion covers and spiced soap and clay pots and mats and bags. And I was in heaven because it was about working with local people and the art they were already doing and helping them to earn a living from it that would enable them to actually feed, clothe and send their kids to school. And when I went back 10 years later, there was one group who'd made spiced soap and they showed me the school they'd built in their village. And it was, you know, the stuff of a lifetime. That was probably the best job I'll ever have in my life. Incredible. So from there, you made your way to the UN. Yeah, very different island. Yeah. I worked in New York. <laughs> Did you meet the locals in Manhattan and help them sell their wares? <laughs> I met the United Nations locals and I helped them sell their wares. So I worked in Manhattan um, at, the, at the Human Development Report, which is the flagship report put out by UNDP, United Nations Development Programme, every year on human development. What's the state of the world? So it was completely the opposite of you know, creating spiced soap with jasmine and peppermint to writing about humanity and human rights. But it was brilliant because it took me right from that very grounded village level up to the big conceptual frames of human existence and where we're going and what we think human development is. And perhaps it gave me the perfect combination to then, after four years there, to go on to Oxfam because my I'd always wanted to work for Oxfam. When I, was a, when I was a teenager, I wanted to work for Oxfam or Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth. And so this dream came true. And it brought together the, the world of the village, actual people's lives, making a difference in people's lives, and the world of public policy that I had learned at the UN. And so it was the perfect place for me. And I spent over a decade working with Oxfam, working on the front lines of their campaigns, uh, demanding workers' rights in global supply chains who were being... A, who were at the a sharp end of supermarket and garment clothing, uh, textile supply chains, and also campaigning on climate change, which is something we got the organization involved in, bringing a social justice organization towards campaigning on an issue that had traditionally been seen as environmental, but we showed actually through our work that this was a profoundly social and justice issue. Incredible. So there was a moment where you decided that's, I'm done. I'm done at Oxfam. And it sounds like you had some ideas that you wanted to get into the world. So can you talk about that, that transition? Well, while I was at Oxfam, I, I've been on maternity leave for a year. I had 
eight, I have eight-year-old twins now. When they were, uh, after a year of maternity, because that's normal to take a year of maternity in England, right? Yeah. How lucky you are. <laughs> um, or maybe that's what normal should be. It is. Um, I, when I came back from maternity leave, as many women coming back from maternity leave, you're not quite sure how you fit in anymore. Someone's doing what you were doing, and you're sort of trying to search back and find a place. And somebody showed me some pictures of these are some of the big ideas that have happened over the past year. And one of them was a circle with these colored lines radiating out of it with all saying climate change, ocean acidification, chemical pollution, land use change. And I had this jolt of adrenaline just ran through me before I even knew exactly what this picture was. And it was the diagram of the nine planetary boundaries drawn by Johan Rockström and around 30 other Earth system scientists in 2009. And what I felt I was seeing was the diagram that had always been missing from economics. Because economics, economists draw the economy without ever recognizing that it exists within the living world. And in this diagram, this very scientific quantified diagram, I felt the message was saying, if you economists won't recognize that the economy exists within the living world, we're going to do it for you. In fact, here it is, we've already made it. And we've, we've designated the space within which the economy can operate. And we've quantified it, not in your terms of money, we've quantified it in our metrics, parts per million of carbon dioxide, tons of nitrogen and water withdrawals. So I saw it as a really powerful rebalancing between the dominance of economics and its language of money and the natural sciences. And so I'm sitting in a social justice organization and my colleagues are digging wells in drought-struck Sudan. They are campaigning for health and education around the world. So I thought, if that's what natural science is doing to rein in the space of economics, what can we as a social justice organization add to that? And I sat with this diagram for a long time and I fiddled with my pencil drawing and how can I draw on this? And in, in the end, I realized that I, I drew a circle in the middle of their circle so that it stopped being a circle, it turned into a donut shape. Right. And I said, just as there's a point over which we can put too much pressure on the planet and we overshoot the outer circle, so too there's an inner limit of resource use, which we call human rights, that every person has a claim to the resources they need for their food, health, education, income, energy. So we mustn't fall below the inner limit and we mustn't go beyond the outer limit. And the donut was born. So the donut was born, you started, I'm sure, sharing it, and then you were compelled to write the book, Donut Well, Economics. so I, I drew, I wrote it up as a discussion paper for Oxfam. Mm -hmm. It was a, just in the run-up to a big conference that the UN was holding in June 2012 called the UN Rio Plus 20 Conference yep. on Sustainable Development. And everybody who was anybody to do with sustainable development environment was going to be there. And I wrote this paper just saying, oh, look, here's a way of looking at the world. This is quite fun, isn't it? Because I love drawing pictures. And... We're going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't go away. And I, and it was published by Oxfam, just as this is an interest, a discussion paper, it's just something on the side. And I was just amazed by the pickup of it. It got used instantly by environmental organizations, by other uh, NGOs like Oxfam, uh, by governments coming to me saying, we're using this in a... People started coming up to me saying, are you the donut lady? And I, <laughs> I thought, what have I done? Better um, than the economist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's true. Um, and I was absolutely amazed by the power of this picture. Wow. 
And I started to think, why are people responding so differently? Because there's a picture. Some people said to me, I've always thought of sustainable development this way. I've just never seen the picture before. But it opened up conversation. It was as if it permitted questions that, that had been somehow off the table. So I became fascinated by the power of the picture. And I realized that this picture, people could ask different questions with it. What kind of technology would help us to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet? What kind of political system what kind of rural development? I wanted to go back to where I'd walked away from. What kind of economic mindset will give us half a chance of getting into this donut where we meet the needs of all within the means of the planet? And I realized it was going to be my therapy on my own education. So I left my job because I wanted to focus on writing a book that allowed me to delve back into my economics textbooks and find the pictures that had so deeply gone into my head then and and eat them out and ask myself, what is it about the way these pictures are drawn that allows me to see some things but leaves others in the blank spaces, that highlights some things and is silent on others? And how do those frame the way we understand the economy? And what would it look like to redraw those pictures? So that's what my book is about. Its subtitle is Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. It could have been called Seven Ways to Draw Like a 21st Century Economist because that's in essence what I do. Which is incredible. I mean, we talked um, earlier in the conference about your deep interest in how do you communicate the complex ideas and the seven, the seven ways of thinking of like a, an economist in the 21st century. And you were fortunate to get some funding, and so you set out searching for animators and animators to collaborate with you to communicate these ideas. Can you talk a little bit about that process and what that was like and how hands-on were you? Yeah, so when so I had a real epiphany moment writing this book, the day that I was sitting in a cafe and I realized I was going to write it around these seven diagrams, that I had seven little diagrams that told the story of old economics. They summed it up and that I could replace each one with a new diagram. And I sat in this cafe with these little icons that I was drawing on the page and they almost looked like little hieroglyphs. And it, already it's art, right? These are little platonic ideals of what the old economy is and what the new economy is. And so then I started to think, as I, as I went on with this adventure of writing the book, I started to think, what would it be like, not just to draw them as little icons, but to make them into stop-motion animation, or even to dance them, or sing them, or photograph them, or film them, or write poems about them, or stand-up comedy. I want to turn these seven ways of thinking into all these different kinds of art because we can connect with so many different ways of engaging in ourselves. So the first one has been the stop motion. Um, very lucky to be funded by the Candida Fund to do this. Um, and we've made, for each of the seven ways of thinking, we've made around a 60 second animation. So what I did was I sat down with a big cup of coffee one day and I thought, right, I have to, in 60 seconds, say the big message of each chapter. And I wrote myself a one minute script and then once I got those, I went into a recording studio, recorded those, so I had a really nice quality sound. And then I went online and I just started watching stop motion and just flicking and scrolling until I found something I thought, that is fantastic. And the ones I like are not actually the slick digital ones. I like the ones that are a bit, a bit 1980s. It's sort of somebody fiddling with something on the table and you can see their hands and it's, it's got a very human, clunky, charming feel to it. And I wanted hands in it because economics is all about the invisible hand. So I, I like the idea that we we're actually making the invisible hand visible. Yep. Um, so I just contacted these folks 
and said, hello, I'm, I'm trying to rewrite economics. Do you want to help me make stop motion animation for rewriting economics for the 21st century? And they said, are you kidding? We're normally making shampoo advertisements. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing we'd like better. So then I would send them the script, send them the chapter it went with, so they got the feel of it, and often send them, here's my first ideas. Here, I am imagining, because each, each of the stories is turning from here's the old way of thinking to the new way of thinking, so it has to have a pivot point in the middle. And I would give them my ideas, but I said, in no way prejudicing what you come up with. Sometimes they would come back with a very faithful depiction of those ideas, Some, sometimes something completely different, which blew my mind, and it was so fun working with them, so fun getting, you know, the last time I got to work with artists, I haven't thought about this before, was when I worked in Zanzibar 20 years ago. Yeah. And this brought me back to working with artists on economics. It, it's kind of incredible also, I mean, the animations are terrific. Um, I've so enjoyed them, but I had not thought about the reference to the 80s. But in fact, they do have a kind of Peter Gabriel, early MTV kind of sensuous, fun qualities, so it, it, it's great. Of course, they're updated. They don't, they don't look dated. But. No, but they've got a kind of fun, homemade yes. feel about them that um, I think it, it just appeals to our humanness. We like things, and, and I think the work, just because the world can be digital, it doesn't mean it's actually better right. for us. And sometimes we prefer, you know, we prefer records over MP3 files. We prefer clunky stop motion over something that's really smooth little gif so absolutely and i mean i think what's really fascinating and i would have had no idea this this kind of interest and in relationship with the arts through your whole life but also to just learn that you're a jazz singer you're a stone carver you like to do photography and our common interest of the new school where i spent 10 years of my life and taking classes at the new school and in, in, in performance, in stone carving when you were at the UN is, is incredible. So your interest in being creative and your own creativity seems to have informed so much of even the more you know, academic and or social, you know, social engaged work. So when I was a teenager, before I started thinking I wanted to be an economist, the first job I really wanted to do was what in England we call being a window dresser. So that's, you know, these big department stores and they have these really fancy displays and I just thought that would be a very cool job because it's, it's basically sculpture, yeah, very totally. artistic sculpture. And then I wanted to be a set designer for operas because my boyfriend was an opera singer, so I wanted to be the set designer. So it was always about making these big sculptural, it's always visual. And I, it's, it's only when I actually discovered these little iconic images at the heart of economics that grabbed me, I suddenly realized who I was. I was like, oh, it's so obvious now. Everything I like is visual. Um, but yeah, I, I sing jazz. And when I went to New York to work for the UN, I'd come from this wonderful island in Zanzibar. I didn't know why I was suddenly in New York and I was lonely. So the first thing I'd do was pick up the New School Adult Education catalog. <laughs> and there was a class in performance singing. And I thought, oh, I wish I was the kind of person who dared to do that. And I was 30 and I'd set myself this challenge that if any, ever I had that little voice in my head, I wish I was the kind of person who dared to do that. Right, you're doing it. You're in New York, you're doing it. So I enrolled for this class. I'd actually been a jazz saxophonist before that, but you, you, it's too hard to try and be a jazz saxophonist <laughs> in New York. So I switched and I learned to, when you're given a stage and a microphone, you damn well respect the fact that people are listening to you and it's a privilege. So you deliver. And I, I think I try and bring that now into the way I present things because it's, it's a privilege. Um, and the stone carving, again, it's about creating shapes. And photography, I, I grew up 
as a, my dad was a wonderful photographer and we had a dark room at home and I grew up in fact, my dad and I used to be Rayworth and Rayworth wedding photographers, and we photographed about 20 weddings together. So it's all about image and the power of image and how much people love images in their lives. And, you know, over half of the nerve fibers in our brain are connected to our visual cortex and our vision. So our brains are image seekers, pattern seekers, and we should be really wise to the images that we allow to be put in our heads, the images that we teach, the images that we use to describe what the economy is and how it works and who we are because they sit silently like graffiti on the mind long after the words and equations have faded. I know that you just finished a round of uh, speaking in the US uh, for, the, for the launch of the book. Um, do you have plans to come back? Um, will people have the opportunity to potentially hear you? Uh, stateside in the fall or sometime in the near future? So I've just spent the first half of May um, on the east coast of the US and then popped over here to Boulder, Colorado because it's wonderful regenerative future summit. I'm planning on coming back to the US, certainly to the west coast later. I mean, I, you know, I have eight-year-old twins. If I didn't have yeah. children in a partner, I would live out of a suitcase and I'd spend a lot of time in the US. It's very tempting and it, it's tearing because it's that commitment to your family and your personal life and then a desire to spread an idea. So yes, I am going to come back to the US, but I'm also making these ideas fully available on my website. So there's videos of me giving talks. There's already about a bunch of podcasts, none as fascinatingly about the connection between art and economics as this one. Um, there's the stop motion animations. But I'm, my desire is to create a space on my website where you could go and so one of the ways of thinking is moving from Newtonian physics thinking where we, we think the economy is a bit like um, a mechanism that gets pulled into equilibrium. So moving from mechanical equilibrium thinking to dynamic complexity. I'd love someone to be able to go to my website and click on that page. What does this mean, mechanical equilibrium to dynamic complexity? Well, first, watch the stop motion animation because it's made in string and it's fantastic. Yes. Second, maybe here's, here's a dance troupe doing that dance. What would it look like as a dance? What would it look like as photography? What would the poem be? What would the stand-up comedy be? What would it look like if you knitted it? What would a puppet show be? I want to work with artists to make all of these things because economics, I mean, for the last three years when I've been telling people I'm writing a book on economics, the first thing they do is draw back <laughs> slightly. And they say, oh, I, I, I was never very good at maths at school. To which I say, look, don't worry. The only numbers in my book are the page numbers. You can do this. But also, it doesn't have to be about equations and these these remote concepts that we think are disconnected from our lives. Economics means household management. Yeah. And we're all part of the household management. And the patterns we see and make in the world around us shape how we manage our household. So we can bring it out of these equations and bring it into our bodies, into our hearts, into our bellies, turn it into art. We can reanimate economics for the 21st century. So my passion is turning this into art. We were talking about a colleague of mine who does dance work based on complex systems and emergent improvisation. And there's just such, I think, a hotbed of interest from young students, not only at Bennington, but across the nation, to engage with these topics, but in a way that makes sense, in a way that they can find expression and participate and bring it back to their, their own world in a way that isn't just these abstracted diagrams from history that are so exclusionary and so biased against what we need right now to survive as a, as a people on a planet. Yes, 
yeah, to, to reinvent ourselves and to see the patterns of the world and to realize that there are different, beautiful, amazing patterns we can create out of complex systems to create an economy, a society that we actually want to live in. Absolutely. Well, listen, Kate, I cannot thank you enough. I know you're flying home today, so I'm sure you're very excited to get back and see your children and your, your partner. So thank you, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you. I look forward to working with you. Great. Create Now is hosted on the Bennington College campus at the Center for the Advancement of Public Action. The Create Now team is Dylan O'Hara, Chloe Shelford, Anna Saldinger, and Rowan Edwards. Today's show was audio engineered by Rowan Edwards and produced by Chloe Shelford. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. Now.